Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. Over the coming months, we're going to be sharing some of the work of a major new research project called Abuse in Religious Settings, which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. The research team includes sociologists of religion, textual scholars, lawyers and experts in the field of abuse. It's the first international project to undertake an integrated study of institutional, policy, professional and individual dimensions of abuse across a wide range of religious traditions. And it aims to break new ground in paying sustained attention to the processes of repair, restitution and recovery, with the experience of survivors at the heart of its investigations. Today, we're bringing you a recording of a recent webinar on abuse in religious settings and the intersection of power. Inevitably, the subject matter included material that some may find disturbing and upsetting, and the project has a resource which anyone wanting to access support can contact. The email for that is airs, A-I-R-S, at kent.ac.uk. The webinar heard a presentation from Linda Woodhead, who is the F.D. Morris Professor at King's College London and Head of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies there. But the first person we hear from is Gordon Lynch, Michael Ramsey Professor of Modern Theology at the University of Kent, who has worked on issues of historic institutional abuse. Abuse, uh, I think we can say as a starting point, abuse always involves power. Um, Normally it involves some direct operation of power between the person committing the abuse and the person experiencing abuse, but there's also a wider um, network or fields of power the operation in relation to this. I'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. But I think before going on to that, just some quick thoughts about the nature of power in social groups. Power is always present in social groups, including groups in which claim to have no forms of power operating within the more hierarchy. And scholars of religion might know uh, Matthew Wood's really interesting study of New Age groups, which sometimes can claim to be non-hierarchical groups, but in which there are still very much informal norms or or power operating within them in terms of how people are expected uh, to work. So when we think about power and the way in which power operates in groups, I think it's helpful not just to think about how power operates in relation to, say, status or hierarchies, or what one person through virtue of their role in the group is authorized or able to do in relation to another person. But power also works through things like group norms, group habits, through collective emotion, shared imagination, through shared goals and projects, and through, in religious contexts, shared objects of love and veneration and desire. All of these are ways of binding people into a group Um, in a way that shapes their sense of self and world, uh, their emotional and physical being in the world. All all of this acts on people as they uh, participate in the group. And in any group setting, power is inherently ambivalent. So power within groups enables people to do things or to become particular things, but can simultaneously act in harmful ways as well. So to step outside of a religious context, if we think in terms of universities, universities, there's all forms, a whole range of kind of explicit or more implicit power in terms of how universities try to seek uh, form students as critical autonomous thinkers. That can be through um, explicit instruction in the classroom, informal modeling in the classroom. It can be through uh, assessment tasks that are set. 
grading processes and ultimately through processes of certification and the ritual of grad, uh, graduation. So all of these are forms of power between the institution and the student that enables the student to become a certain kind of person. But we also know in terms of uh, inequalities in degree attainment that actually that process isn't a kind of purely neutral or innocent one, that actually it can act in ways that exacerbate inequalities that already exist, for example, in relation to class or race before people come into a university curriculum. So power can both enable, but in ways that can also be uh, harmful. I think it's also useful to think more generally in power in quite expansive ways, not simply in terms of power between particular individuals. And here I found the work of Bruno Latour quite useful in terms of his uh, concepts of actor network, actor network theory. And Latour has this idea of actants in a social field. And what he means by that is anything that shapes or influences or places limits on the way in which people are in a social setting, which can be other people and their, their relationships, but it can be objects, it can be images, it can be the meaning of spaces, uh, it can be ideas and stories, or, or imagined relations with others, the way in which people experience uh, their relationship with the, the divine or uh, unseen presences as well. So all of those are things that combine together to set up these fields of power within which people operate within groups. An essential part of being part of a group is often for individuals to subject themselves to the power of the, to those forms of power in order to become part of that group, to subject themselves to the group project or the group norms, um, and to, to become part of that collective culture by, in, in various ways, explicitly or implicitly subjecting themselves to that and that's not unique to religious groups we see that as i've said before in education we see it for example in sports training uh, as well many other forms of wider training that affect just not thought but behavior body and emotion as well and that process can be enabling but can also create potential contexts for uh, abuse as well in religious contexts we can if we think about power in that more expansive way we can see how in addition to the power operating in the immediately abusive relationship, that power can also set up um, hierarchies um, or cultures of deference uh, in religious groups, which are often uh, gendered uh, in nature. They can place constraints on consent because certain actions are presented as being for a person's spiritual or moral benefit um, and necessary spiritual discipline. They can set up implicit rules about what can be spoken about in the group or who can be spoken to, uh, which can have a bearing on people's experiences of disclosure. Or these forms of power can also set up certain expectations about relationships of trust as well, trust which can be uh, exploited and betrayed. So one of the things that we often think about in, in the group is about what is different and what's not different about abuse in religious contexts compared to other settings um, and that's perhaps a, something we can maybe unpick a little bit more in, in uh, discussion later on if that's helpful but whilst I think it's important not to overemphasize the distinctiveness of abuse in religious settings there are some ways in which it, it may have a slightly different character partly because that those forms of power that we're thinking about are grounded in totalizing claims about the nature of reality of goodness and truth or the meaning of salvation and enlightenment. And these aren't just the norms of an organization, they're uh, experienced as being the norms of reality itself from which there is no outside. 
I think we've come to increasingly recognize within the group that there are particular um, forms of, of religious group in which in the same way that kind of atoms in a solid get even more kind of wedged together. So forms of power become even more accentuated in religious groups that are socially tightly knit, that are suspicious or withdraw from engagement with a wider society that are highly hierarchical, again, in often in patriarchal ways that have a kind of cultural suspicion uh, of secular society and in which members are economically and socially dependent on each other. These That kind of dynamic of religious group seems to uh, accentuate all of these forms of power and their potential for harm even more. Some final um, quick comments, um, just to throw these out there in terms of how we think about power in religious settings. I think it sometimes it can be tempting to think about power in monolithic or centralised ways, but I think even um, through the uh, child abuse uh, inquiries that I've worked in in the past, when cases have come up in relation to the Anglican and Catholic Church, for example, it becomes clear that power is often fragmented or decentered in some ways, that it's distributed uh, across an organisation in, in complex ways, even in religious groups that may appear to be more centralised. I think it's also important not just to think about how power operates within religious, the religious groups themselves, but how wider inequalities and power within society also have a bearing on this. For example, in uh, the Irish, some of the Irish uh, cases that have been working on the, the over-representation of working-class children in the industrial school system uh, in Ireland reflected a wider social inequality in society that then left these um, children subject to abuse in, in these very poorly run institutions. But a final theme just to raise, just to throw out there as well, is that often when we think about power in this context, we're thinking about the kind of active effects or active use of power. But one of the things in the work that I did on the history of British child migration um, and the relationship between religious organisations and the state was the importance of the non-use of power, how um, essentially in that historical story, the um, many traumatic experiences that children had sent with particular organisations were to do with the failure of the British government to enact regulation that it could have introduced quite easily um, over certain voluntary societies organizations but where civil society civil servants and ministers chose not to do that because they thought it was too uh, resource heavy it would be ineffective or because it, it would uh, up, basically upset stakeholders that they needed to keep on board for other reasons uh, and so actually sometimes the non-use of power or the self-imposed limits on power can be very significant and i think in the wake of uh, criticisms of the uh, final report of ICSA in terms of its i think relatively weak regulatory structure that it's uh, suggesting for religious organizations and other voluntary organizations, that may be something, a lesson that we still may not have learned uh, from the British child migrants case as well. These are, I have to say, very just, uh, very much initial thoughts uh, in the spirit of these webinars, just to get conversation going. So um, hopefully there's something that will stimulate some thought, and I'm sure there's more that we can add to both in terms of new insights or developing these as well. Thank you very much, Gordon. Um, do put your questions in the chat box and I will come to you. I will just ask one while you're all typing away, um, which you came to at the end, but I was also thinking about earlier. You, you, you talked about the, the, uh, the non-use of power, uh, but you also said that you know, power is present, whether we like it or not, in all our social interactions. And then there is this part of the project that is going to be looking at um, restitution, recovery, and so on. And so I wonder whether 
uh, or when um, the project might be looking at the the positive uses of power in in recovery in in support of survivors and and so on one of the things that we're conscious of with the projects we keep coming back to in the project team is the the value for work like this not simply to identify uh, problems um, and, and failures of which we can identify many but i think positive uses of power in, in relation to religious organizations as well and that that in a way is running across all of the strands um, uh, of the work in terms of models of good practice uh, and i think we'll probably be in a better position to kind of come back with some more organised thoughts on that, I think when we start reporting back early next year. But I think that might be something that Linda talks about more in terms of the work package that, that she's leading on as well. Thank you. Um, do put your questions in. We've got a question here. Um, what did you mean when you talked about having constraints on consent and how there are certain expectations of trust? Yeah, so I think one one interesting um, example that we've uh, been talking uh, about in the group has been uh, an example of abuse that takes place in the context of um, physical uh, healing practices which are, are seen as having a spiritual dimension as well or which have a it contains some sense of physical touch and if someone is in um an environment uh, and what was interesting as we talked about it in the group was we actually realized that this was something that actually had recurred across a number of different religious settings from sort of more alternative spirituality groups to a case in evangelical christianity as well where the massage or, or the physical touch was being presented as part of a spiritual practice whereby presenting something as something that's spiritually beneficial for someone it becomes harder to sort of step back and have a clearer sense of whether a boundary is being transgressed there, certainly in the immediate moment uh, of the experience. So actually that, that sense of consent is actually being undermined by a kind of blurred reality that's being created in that moment. Another question here. Um, interested to hear more about the distinctiveness of faith-based abuse and how you explore that with survivors. Uh, something that apparently peer support groups are discussing a lot. What, what, are, what are you hearing from them about the distinctiveness of faith-based abuse? And again, I mean, Linda, Linda will say more about this because this is directly on her, on her project as well. I think very briefly, I, I think there are um, particular ways in which religious groups become entirely immersive worlds, uh, just in terms of what they're creating for people in, in terms of a, a sense of spiritual and moral reality, but that gets accentuated with some groups that are particularly inward looking um, as well. I think there's also um, the fact that re some religious groups have particular histories in terms of their relationship with wider society that that makes them more withdrawn and more introverted in terms of how they uh, experience themselves. So some of the things that I saw in terms of Catholic groups uh, in the early 20th century are actually being replicated now in some minority religious groups uh, as well, I think, in terms of those internal dynamics. But also, I think there's a, a discourse of religion that sometimes religious organisations use uh, in terms of religious freedom to resist um, regulation or, or oversight as being a, an infringement of their in, intrinsic religious rights. And I think that there's a kind of discourse that religious groups are able to draw on there that some other organisations aren't. So, but Lin, Linda will have more to say on this as well. Okay, well, that might be a good time to go to Linda. Hand over to you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, thanks everyone for coming. I want to talk, my talk is called The Weapons and the Armour of the Abuser. 
brackets in a religious setting. Uh, the data here, I'm working on Gordon's project along with Joe Kind, and the two of us are talking to survivors about how they survived. So we're talking to people who disclosed at least a decade ago and who've got a long story since abuse and disclosure. And we're talking about what makes it so hard to survive and what are the things that help and does faith play a relation, does faith play a role in relation to that? Um, that's not the primary data I'm going to use today, though, because we're still collecting that data through interviews with survivors in different religious and spiritual traditions. Today, I'm mainly going to draw on the very substantial materials that were produced by the Irish, Australian and English and Welsh inquiries into child sexual abuse. So the examples I'm going to give are in the public domain in, 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 those, in the documents of those inquiries. And I'm going to try and complement Gordon by, in a way, looking through the other end of the telescope. I'm going to look down at the micro level at how abusers use institutional settings to abuse. So two parts, the weapons and the armour of the abuser. Um, but let me just start with a quick statistic. Aggregated studies show that as many as one in five women and one in 20 men experience sexual abuse at some time in their lives and more experience bullying. One in five women, one in 20 men. Uh, and we also know that around 95% of perpetrators are male of sexual abuse, about 95% are male. Um, the family is the most common context for sexual abuse and a known person is most likely to abuse. Uh, a couple of important things I think follow from those numbers for us. One, you know, it's statistically likely that in our group here now on Zoom, many people will have first-hand experience of abuse. Uh, and perhaps there'll be one or two of perpetrating, have experience of perpetrating abuse. I don't think we should be naive about that. And abusers learn from talks like these and um, benefit from getting onto safeguarding committees and projects looking into abuse and things like that. I'll explain why. Um, the other thing that follows from statistics is that abuse in the family or abuse in an in a, um, industrial school like Gordon mentioned in Ireland doesn't have to be very subtle. You can literally, and there are horrible stories of it, you can literally jump on um, a child. They are trapped in that, set, on, in that setting. The kinds of abuse in religious institutional settings that um, are more common and that we're looking at require more subtlety. The perpetrators have to prepare more carefully because these are voluntary groups and people can, in theory, exit from them and report on what is happening. So the abuse has to be, in a sense, cleverer abuse. And that's what I want to talk about. So the weapons of the abuser first, and I'm going to number them. And then when I finish the talk, I'll just put up a slide with all, because I've got quite a lot of points so that you don't lose them. But let me talk them through first. So other than just straightforward abuse, uh, sorry, assault, uh, violent assault, what are the weapons that an abuser can use, particularly in an institutional context? Number one, um, probably pretty obvious, the use of authority, esteem, and or charisma. It can just be institutional authority. You know, the abuser is a clergy person um, or a bishop. They're high up. They've got that authority from their position. 
or it can be a different type of authority and power, which is charismatic. Charming is a good word. Abusers are often charming, and the aim is to enchant you, you know, casting a spell over you. And abusers will often have genuinely admirable traits and achievements. You look up to them. Um, there's a seduction involved very often. It's not just coercion here. Sometimes there's a devious game between abuser and, and the abused in that both are getting something out of it. Both are using one another, but the abused is in a much lesser position of power. You know, proverbially, the casting couch. We saw that with the Weinstein abuse. Uh, and then that can be weaponized against them to make them feel complicit because they were having to do it to further their career. Um, but it doesn't mean that they are equally um, uh, to be blamed, of course, but the, the abuser can often make it seem that way and bystanders. So secondly, a second weapon, um, Gordon talked about objects, the use of religious, let's call them power objects, sacraments, divine grace, demons, scriptures. Abusers in religious settings often use these things to, to control using the idea of demon possession uh, can be used, for example, um, but also to justify what's happening and to protect yourself if you're accused. We know that Bishop Peter Ball in the Anglican Church or John Smythe also in the Anglican Church in England um, used teachings about the mortification of the flesh, monastic teachings, ideas about penances, um, ideas about using the rod to discipline children. All these were used to justify beatings and, and, and other forms of abuse. Um, we've spoken to some um, Jehovah's Witnesses talking about the use of scriptures like 1 Timothy, where you need two to three witnesses uh, before you can bring a charge of abuse. <clears throat> Thirdly, third weapon, normalization. Uh, perpetrators often work quite hard to make the abuse seem normal and by by making sort of gradual steps in it, you make it seem normal. Brian Devlin, who, who exposed the abuse of Cardinal Keith O'Brien in Scotland in the Catholic Church has a book called Cardinal Sin, in which he talks very well about how, um, um, rather hauntingly about how Keith O'Brien gradually, by getting him into his, his study, offering him spiritual advice and counsel, and then just taking one step and then laying on hands and then um, embracing him and get more full-on abuse. How slow the process was. It's a bit like raising the temperature, you know, the proverbial frog in the warm water, and there's not an obvious point at which a victim can scream and jump out. Fourthly, fourth, my fourth and final weapon, blurred boundaries. Um, a lot of the abuse we're hearing about works through blurring boundaries. Sometimes it's about getting into your private space, what's public and what's private? Is sharing a car, is that getting into your private space? Sharing a hotel room, um, bathrooms becoming sites for abuse, you know, these, these blurry boundaries of private and public space. Gordon also mentioned healing as a space for abuse because touching, spiritual touching, then breaking the boundary that you'd normally say, don't touch me. Um, entering into your energy <coughs> in Tibetan Buddhism, that's practice being used to enter into the psychic energy of another person. Talking about a religious group as a family, 
that really blurs boundaries. Talking about a religious leader as a father or a mother and you as a child or a sheep, very blurry boundaries again. Confessing your deepest sins, talking about what's going wrong in your own sexual relationship with your partner, uh, which, which, which people in religious authority might do, blurs a boundary. So those are my four weapons. As I say, I'll put them up again, but let me talk now about the armor, the abuser's armor. Well, as weapons, abusers make use of institutions to build protection around themselves. I think in a very often conscious calculating way. And this will protect them if it comes to it, that they are exposed um, and accused of abuse. So I'm gonna number them again, because I am a nerd. So number one, being in a religious institution, of course, gives someone the authority and legitimacy and it pays them. So this is important. Uh, some people are being paid to perpetrate. But there's more than that that institutions offer by way of armor. Uh, a second thing is to cultivate powerful friends. This is often done, we see this over and over again by abusers. Make sure you're surrounded by powerful friends. So if you need them, you can draw on them. Here's Bishop Peter Ball again. He had a law lord ringing the police, asking them to drop the case against him. He had Prince Charles writing in. He had Archbishop Carey um, hiding letters from six separate disclosures from the police. And, um, so very, very highly placed people protecting. The third thing abusers often do is become indispensable to the institution. Again, this is to do with charisma and you know, often they're people who, um, they've become so indispensable that exposing them is going to be very embarrassing widely. That's partly true for Keith O'Brien, Cardinal Keith O'Brien, very charismatic Catholic in Scotland. Fourthly, in the armory, fourthly, implicate others. Abusers often let things slip. And if you don't then, you know, if you don't, you might be perfectly innocent in the institution, but you've heard something, you didn't act on it. You've become a kind of accomplice, makes it much harder later on to get involved and stand up. Um, bragging about victims in front of them and a third party, that's the technique that abusers use. Um, we heard about that in, if any of you saw the TV programme, The Church's Deadly Secret, about um, Peter Ball and the Church of England, about how <clears throat> kind of um, other people who, they may or may not know that they're all abusers, but they would sit a victim on the knee, on their knee, in front of another person, or um, this kind of bragging, really, about what you're doing or calling another abuser, my dear friend, in front of a victim who's been abused by both. Fifthly, in the armory, discredit your accusers. And this can be done before, um, as a protection, you know, even before that accuser might not have said anything about you, but you can just use gossip innuendo and institutional tools like reports and references to sow little suggestions that victims are, you know, a little unstable or, or something that undermines them um, gently. Uh, you can whisper confidential, confidentially, I can't talk about this, but um, I do know things about this person that are quite disturbing. That kind of talk is cleverly undermining. You can pull on it later in if you need to, let's try to say something about it. And sixthly and finally, um, in the armory, create a fog of confusion. 
a cloak of fogginess. Perpetrators, perpetrators use slippery talk and slippery thinking, very hard to pin down. If they're accused, they often have very clever techniques. They slip through the net over and over again. They throw up smoke screens. They do things like produce a vast amount of wearing, confusing evidence and counter evidence. So very forensic and everyone gets absolutely exhausted and crushed by the amount of evidence they're bringing. Admitting some things, so they look really honest, but not the really bad ones. Um, insinuating, mitigating things, that it was all in a good cause, or there were reasons why it had to happen, or it's for the sake of the institution, and so on. Um, we can call it gaslighting as well as fullness. And people involved, including, including the victims, you, know, you, just, you end up not knowing what's real and what's not real, and distrusting yourself, and it all becomes very hard to pin down. Finally, concluding, our theme has been about power and Gordon started off very helpfully thinking about general issues in power. There has been an evolution in how we think about abuse. It used to be, oh, it's really about sex. These are sexual perverts. The next step was thinking, actually, no, this is about power over other people. And Gordon's explained that very well. Now we've got, what, what, what sort of power? You know, as Gordon said, power is a very broad thing. Um, we've all got power of some kinds. I've got power as a professor. Um, power can be used for good and bad. So what kind of power is an abuser after? Coercion and control and the legislation around that, I think, is a further really important step in understanding what kind of power. There is a kick that people get out of controlling people. That's a very specific use of power. Some, some enjoyment, abuse can be just the enjoyment of the sheer control of somebody, total control. But I want to add to that another word, and that is cruelty. I think disturbingly that for some abusers, cruelty has to be part of how we understand what they're getting out of it and what they're doing. And a book, I'll also put up a couple of books for further reading. Um, this is a popular book you might have seen on, on the, you know, um, in W.H. Smith um, by a forensic psychologist called um, Dr. Adshead, and she, her book is called The Devil You Know. And she talks about um, the, the, the absolute flood of child porn online. And she says, why are so many people, including doctors and professional people looking at child porn? And she talks about cruelty and what is it in human nature that makes it enjoyable um, to be cruel to another um, uh, weaker, person. So in conclusion, it says in the film Spotlight, Spotlight, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse a child. Thank you, Linda. Um, do put questions in. And when we've um, had a couple of questions with Linda, then do put in um, comments, questions to both Gordon and Linda. But we'll just have a couple of um, questions if they if you want to put them in while you look at this screen as well. Um, Linda, I just wanted to ask you, um, has any of this research thought about, or made decisions about whether to engage with perpetrators or those who work with them? I mean, you're, you know, here you are, you're, you're seeking to understand the, the way they operate, the weapons that they use, the armour that they employ. Um, um, how much of that is, is gleaned from talking to survivors, how much might be understood even more by talking to mm. perpetrators? Yeah, 
Um, that's where, and I'll put the stuff up in the chat, but that's where the, I can't do that and think about your question at the same time, Rosie, cannot multitask that much. Um, that's where um, um, the ads head book, The Devil You Know, is very interesting because she spent her life talking to um, criminals of various kinds, including perpetrators of sexual abuse. So I think that's very, in, it's a very important book for that reason. And she's very clear about uh, not just saying these are evil people but the complexity of their stories and understanding them and understanding how they get to a step of admitting. I mean, I could have put actually up as another um, bit of the armor, denial. She talks a lot about denial and dissociation and how perpetrators themselves use that. I've spoken to prison chaplains who work with perpetrators of sexual abuse, who talk about splitting and denial. So these people will say, um, this was something I did, but it, you know, it wasn't really me. It's part, it's, it's some part of me dissociated. Adshead talks about how her therapy is about bringing, getting, you, getting um, perpetrators to associate, to take the steps from saying, I don't know what came over me, or denying, to taking responsibility and saying what they did. That is her therapy. It's a very interesting book. But you're right, there's been much more, and is being much more um, research with victims and with perpetrators, but it's starting. I've got a PhD student called Jonathan um, Abernetti Barker, who has been talking to both victims and perpetrators. And um, I think it's, you know, like, as you say, it will be, be something that happens more, but it's harder to get access, of course. I mean, I suppose the, the other question is, I mean, you talk about it very disturbingly about the sort of conscious decision by perpetrators to be cruel. Um, but you also talk about denial. So there's also there are also unconscious mechanisms at work. And I wonder um, how far you're, or in what way you're able to sort of get into discussing that. I don't think there's one, you know, I don't think there's one set of motivations. And I think they can vary over time. And, and, and some perpetrators, I mean, they're not all the same. Um, and the motivations are very different to different people. You can see in some of the uh, inquiry transcripts that some perpetrators who are, um, in, I mean, you know, have um, hundreds or more victims and who are quite open about it in institutions and brag about it and, can, and make jokes about it. And there's a kind of openness within uh, some church circles. This was what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of a inquiry into the Newcastle Anglican Diocese, where this is really clear that there, that there is that sort of open sharing and um, normalization so that it becomes a sort of focus of humor amongst the clergy and, and there are reflections on that in people uh, writing about that in Australia. I think so I think a whole range of things go on here. Um, there's a question here and, and um, Gordon you might want to come in on this one as well but uh, um, are we seeing different weapons or armor being developed and utilized in the light of safeguarding training being more widespread? Yes, that is a brilliant question. I'm going to put on my armour now. Hang on. Um, um, I would absolutely expect that to happen. I think, you know, it's thing, things are harder now, but um, I was talking to someone about this the other day and said, do you think it's, do you think because it's so much harder now and safeguarding is so much better that there is a reduction in the amount of abuse? And they said, no, it's just taking, it's just morphing into different forms and learning different techniques. I don't know how you'd ever settle that argument, but it was a frightening thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's so. And, and you know, perpetrators do say they do come to talks like this to learn about what we're learning about them, so that then they don't display that behaviour. Or so it's a it's cat and mouse kind of thing. Gordon, did you want to add anything there? 
Uh, no, I think I think Linda's put that really well. I did have a couple of uh, quick thoughts just for comments that have gone in chat though, Rosie, yeah. if I just, just a couple of things that had spotted there. One, um, Jane, thanks very much for that comment about enrolling God uh, in these processes as well. Oddly, one of the things that, um, this is why I often recommend the Robert Orsi book as well, I think one of the things that religious scholars sometimes struggle about is actually talking about the relationships or the way in which divine figures um, operate within social settings often people talk about religious identity or other kind of group dynamics and not that that particular kind of relationship and I think that is really really important in the terms of how people uh, experience those relationships with God how God is presented and how God is presented or the divine or the sacred is presented as legitimizing certain power structures so I think that is really important to to keep hold of that uh, and Rosie just in response to Jay's comment about restitution um uh, as well, um, I, I think one of the um, one of the things I found really interesting or helpful with this work is working with colleagues in Ireland who have um, been through now a succession of disappointments with national uh, inquiries. Uh, I think particularly because of quite complicated ways in which the state and religious groups are implicated together in in difficult histories uh, in Ireland. And I, I think what's interesting there is um, a growing recognition amongst those colleagues and the survivor communities. That they work with that actually sometimes putting too much faith in inquiries might not be well placed and hopefully we'll get better outcomes than Scottish child abuse inquiry than we got from ICSA I might have higher hopes for that I think but it may be about sometimes the peer support that survivors um, create with each other and I know there are people on this call who are really uh, involved in that that really important work um, but also in ways in which we find alternative ways of speaking about and remembering uh, and addressing abuse that may not always rely on things like state-run inquiries or where the legal processes may be part of that picture, but uh, again, uh, a flawed and incomplete picture. Um, I've put someone else's question before I put another of my own. There's one here. Um, how does religious perpetrators differ from other perpetrators when the impact of the harm is the same? Linda, I don't know if you want to speak to that. I, I don't think it necessarily does. Yeah, I think yeah, we, should, we can't um make any clear distinctions or, or my weapons and armor a lot of that would apply in other sorts of institutions um, um, so I, I don't ever draw a strong line between religious and non-religious institutions for, for this happening um i'm, I'm interested in that this is a this is a cross-faith um research project is looking at faith in many different religious settings and i just wonder whether you expect to find things which are very distinctive within one particular religion, or whether you think your find your your general findings will uh, will sort of um, resonate across them all. I think we've Joe and I have found already that you know some of the general because some of my points about armor and weapon have come out of our interviews as well, um, and um, um, it's I've, I've been surprised, for example, talking to some Buddhist survivors about the way in which Buddhist teaching has been used. But the minute they say it, you think, oh yes, they're using that to implicate others or to create fogginess or to blur a boundary. But you know, so different teachings in different traditions can be used for the same sort of overall purpose. Um, if anyone wants to come in on, on that, people who are looking at um, abuse in, in um, 
different religious settings, then please do. I know there are one or two of you here. Um, a question, just say if you want to uh, comment and, and ask the question yourself rather than me sort of field it on your behalf. Um, there's a question here, though, in a Christian context, how much does the pervasive interpretation of Jesus, our substitute on the cross, support abuse? Um, this person avoids Good Friday meditations um, and cites John Smythe in this regard. It's a really powerful image of subjection, isn't it? Um, which again can be used to, to legitimise kind of the subjection of people's experience. And, and when that is continually held up as a as a model, and, and in the John Smythe case, that that's that's yeah a, a very clear demonstration of that. And I, I think, uh, Rosina, that just going back to that last question, I think that's a really good example both about how in some of the dynamics we find a lot of commonalities across different religious groups um, and actually across different forms of abuse, whether it be emotional, spiritual, uh, physical or, or sexual. Um, but that actually, that obviously these things will be configured slightly differently in different religious groups as well, depending on the particular tradition and the stories uh, and the religious culture. But also where I think, I think possibly one of the things we're seeing more clearly already through the project is what a difference it makes if a religious group is relatively more open in terms of the kind of networks and people have outside of the group or whether it's a highly enclosed group which um, presents another, another set of difficulties as well. Um, there's another question. Um, what recommendations would you offer to parents and caregivers of children to reduce the risk for their children becoming a victim of abuse? In a religious setting, I take that one. I it's a very important question because um, doing this research also made me realise something I didn't think of before, which is that um, all the people that we've spoken to abused in a religious setting um, uh, weren't able to talk to their families or their schools. Um, and no doubt they were partly targeted because of that, but it's a particular vulnerability. So it's a kind of holistic picture. Um, um, there are, you know, there's a threefold failure that for some reasons, various reasons, they couldn't do that necessary emotional work in any, there was no safe setting for them. If that hadn't been the case, I don't think the religious perpetrators could have got away with what they got away with. So having, being able as parents having a setting in which your children are safe enough to talk about these, to talk about things they that emotionally just feel disturbed and uncomfortable about, really, really important. Being clear about what boundaries in your body and what can and can't be done to your body, I think really simple stuff that I hope schools do more now as well, some I know do. And, and oh, sorry, Rosie, yeah, I think just, yeah, it, just exactly on that, I think one of the things I noticed um, from my own experience of, of my son at, at the moment at primary school is that there are quite a close attention within the school on the importance of kind of the children having an authentic emotional life and learning to articulate their emotions that we see in some religious settings precisely a, a, an opposite um, emphasis in terms of a, a training to, to, to train one's emotions in relation to the religious norms uh, of yeah. the group which can be um, yeah. very harmful for children in which they're being encouraged to internalize things that are actually very damaging for them, but which is seen as they're being presented to them as religiously legitimate. I was having a conversation the other day, I can't remember who it was with, but they they made a generalisation, but one they felt, you know, was true, I'd be interested to know what other people think, that a, a lot of local churches are are really up to speed with safeguarding and, and, and 
quite good at it. But at the institutional level, it's the sort of the next level up where the, the big failures take place. Um, I don't know, Linda, whether you've got any thoughts about that. I don't know whether that's just when the, the, the churches that haven't been good at safeguarding, when those, when those mm. cases come to light and need to be investigated, and that's mm. where the failure comes, mm. um, or whether the failure is in the guidance that comes down and that local churches are sort of finding their own way of doing it because they actually do know better. I, I, I'm, I was just very taken with this woman's observation. Yes, that's really interesting. I think that what goes wrong is when is idealization you know when a religious group idealizes itself when it presents itself as we're a really loving happy family or we are we're presenting um, higher values to the nation we're telling you what's right and wrong and we're standing for christian values for example whether that's at the local level or the national level and it probably happens more at the national level it becomes then incredibly hard to admit that actually you've got some really grubby thing going on in your institution. And um, I think senior leaders often have more invested in saying that their institution is really good and shiny and therefore finding it really hard to admit these things. We've seen that over and over again. So our idealization of any institution is really dangerous. And of course, it's a kind of marketing thing. And, and it's, it's, it's marketing, PR, you know, all those, the more, the more you've got comms and HR and PR working together, the more you're going to get this glossy brochure um, uh, front, which then becomes really hard to admit the realities behind the smiling faces. Um, a comment oh, um, from Amy, Amy, I don't know if you want to put it yourself, you put it much better than me, uh, if you want to unmute yourself, you're interested in the comments about the evolution in the way that researchers consider sexuality. Do you want to open the discussion with Linda? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, Linda. Hi. I was just interested in the comment that you made that we, there's been this kind of change in the way that researchers think about abuse. It used to be in terms of sort of sexual perversion, kind of in quotes, right? to thinking about abuse, you know, mainly in terms of abuse of power, you know, it's about power, it's always about power, it's not about sexuality. And then you made the comment that we have to push the, the discussion about power, um, you know, we have to unpick it more and think about it um, in, in more detailed ways, um, which is what Gordon was also talking about. So I'm just really interested in whether you think, um, either of you, both of you think that there's a framework for thinking about abuse in terms of just both power and sexuality, instead of this kind of either or. Is that beneficial? Is that something that you've been um, seeing in your research and your data? Hmm. I'm going to ask Gordon to answer that one. I'm really sorry, Amy. I was multitasking there and I was reading chat. Well, oh, I think you honesty and <laughs> power. Uh, I mean, sex and power are not, I think, I mean, you're right, pushing on something really important here. Sex and power aren't separable necessarily, anyway. Um, the sexualization of power and the power of sex, it does, it is, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't say, well, it's not about sex. But mm. that was a reaction to saying it's not primarily about sexual pleasure and gratification. You can get that in all sorts of ways. So um, there's a lot more going on going on in this. Um, I'm not sure that's a very good answer, but uh, it helps to, to not think, oh, this is just about kinky people and you know blah blah blah. That was a real distraction that I think meant the problem wasn't faced for a very long time. So it's an advance to get beyond that. 
but in in terms of uh, certain issues around gender and sexuality, you, we're usually finding a, a implicated in in all of the kind of settings that we're finding. But interestingly, in some of the the contexts that we've seen, sometimes this can be a group with a highly permissive um, attitude towards sexuality, which is then used to kind of break down boundaries in which abuse can then take place. And in other times, uh, groups with a highly kind of structured or rigid uh, understanding of sexuality where um, issues of shame around sexuality can then be used to silence people. So there, there can be different mm. group cultures, but um, they, they can be used variously to, uh, to facilitate abuse. And the Irish inquiry didn't just look at sexual abuse, it looked at physical and emotional abuse as well. And that gave it a much bigger remit. It was more frightening in a way. So for example, um, female religious orders didn't do sexual abuse, but they did do physical and emotional abuse. Hmm. Um, there's an interesting one here, which I know people have got views on. Where do you see the overlap between these sorts of power abuses in religious and spiritual contexts and cult abuse? Is this relevant to or be included in the project's work? Yes, so uh, and there, there's um, yes, absolutely, and in, in a sense, the the kind of some of those tightly knit um, groups um, that, that we've sort of touched on before. I think that is clearly um, uh, cults are clearly one one kind of form uh, of that. And one of the um, strands of the project is um, involving a, a secondary analysis, a reanalysis of data that the um, informed think tank have in London about new religious movements and about types and forms of abuse, which is, um, and we'll be saying more about what, what's coming out from that in terms of factors and in cultures and structures of organisations that seem to seem to be implicated in abuse. But yeah, no, it's a, a really important area to be looking at, definitely. Um, we've got about five more minutes only. Um, so I'll put in- Rosie, I noticed that I mentioned Brian Devlin's important book about called Cardinal Sin about, and I noticed that he put a note, he's here, he put a note in the chat, of, which is a useful one. It might be nice to have Brian make that point to us somewhere higher up, Brian. Right. I can't see you, Brian. Would you like to unmute yourself? And Hi, yes, yes. Thank you very much. Nice to see you all. Thank you. What a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I was really just, uh, you know, when, since my book has come out, then a number of people have come up to me and said, oh, yeah, we always knew there was something going on with Cardinal O'Brien. So there is this sort of mm. uh, background theatre of uh, bystander information. I know I was in the inner circle. Mm. I sort of was aware of things. And, and I wonder if there's a if you happened across some sort of explanation for that at all. Mm. I, that's, that's another denial and association, isn't it? So a lot, of, a lot of people facilitated it and they kind of knew, but they didn't know. And people often say that. Well, we sort of knew, but we didn't quite see it like that. And that's a way of dissociating yourself from what's going on and not really quite looking at what's happening. And Brian, I've also heard people, that was true in the Catholic circles that you were in, but um, in C of E circles, Another normalization is that the, the banter, you know, the banter that would go on in a religious setting between clergy or religious or monks or whatever could, could re-normalize really, you know, perverted forms of uh, behavior as well. Turn it into yeah, I think that's really important. That's a really clever point, actually. Thank you. There's something about the normalization, isn't there? Um, that, you know, this is this is just what happens. I mean, I just remember in mm. the BBC with the Jimmy Savile case. I mean, the number of people who, uh, again, just had a hunch that 
something wasn't quite right. But because because that sort of um, behaviour was was sort of was was normalised, um, people felt they couldn't really alert anyone to it because they, they just might be wrong. You know, they didn't have any real evidence or proof. They they just thought something wasn't quite right from the interactions that they'd had with him or something. So th th there is that um, that place of normalization and and the sort of continuum I suppose you get among people who have a hunch then might actually have more than a hunch and have a bit of an ev evidence and then actually in some way become actually complicit um, in, in the abuse. I can remember Rosie the actual point at which because we I've done it myself um, in a university setting with other women at a table at dinner laughing about these older guys in the department who are we're really bullying and abusing us in various ways. And we, there's a point in which we just stopped one year and we said, why are we laughing at this? Mm. And we had done for several years, as part of the banter about, oh, you know, he's such a character, what a weird thing he did and whatever. And then there was suddenly a moment in time. Part of this is cultural, isn't it? Mm. You can only see what you're allowed to see in the wider society as well. Um, there's a good question to end here on. Um, what is hopeful for survivors to know? Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, something about the place that, um, I mean, it would be good to hear more about the place you are giving to survivors within the research and how how they're sort of feeding back to you, how they are part of it. I mean, it would be good to hear very briefly about that. Um, that might be something hopeful for survivors to know, but what, what other thoughts have you got on, on hope? Shall I go first, Gordon? Um, I think it's all about your resilience. Yeah, yeah. So our project is about the strength of survivors and how they manage to keep going, given how deeply damaging this is and how you don't recover from it. Um, but one of the most hopeful things that many hopeful things that people have said to Joe and I already, but one one is about um, um, you can never know that someone's not going to try and do this to you again, but you can control that you have more control over that. The more you understand about it, the more you've been through it, you don't have to be as fearful. You know, as a child, you are really unprotected. And that had given them enormous hope and a, a courage to go back out into the world, realizing that they had more agency over it because they talked about it, because they'd had the therapy, because they knew they could spot it, because they knew to understand it and because they knew how to act when somebody does act in an abusive way towards you. I thought that was a very helpful way of looking at it. You can't stop it happening, but you, you can go into the world more protected. Gordon? Um, yeah, no, I, I think I, I won't add much more to that other than that, that support that people find often again in a peer-to-peer -peer way from other survivors is so, I think, so important. And I, I think the, the study that Linda and Joe are doing around resilience, I think will be really important in terms of what we can what we can learn from that in terms of people's experience of, of survival and um, uh, uh, as well. I, I just wanted to say, Rosie, I, I know chat's been absolutely buzzing. Fantastic. Really interesting things too. Yeah. I know, I know. So I'm really conscious. Um, my apologies for anyone that we've not got to. Um, I suggest today. we leave chat open for, uh, for, you know, just for five minutes so that people mm. can um, just mm. have 
exchange quick messages with one another. Um, we'll, we'll close the conversation now and I'd like to thank Linda and Gordon very much for their presentations and to all of you for coming and there are some amazing questions that I've just seen and now I want to say oh gosh why haven't we got another hour. Um, so there will be more um, webinars and I hope you'll join us again and Eve I'm sure we can get um, a sort of list of all these questions so that we can return to them in, a, in, in another um, Zoom briefing but thank you very much everybody and uh, hope to see you again. Thank you all very much. Thank you.